Hi, this is Dr. Devin Brown, author of Inside Narnia and A Life Observed, and you're listening to Pints with Jack. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Pints with Jack, its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. (laughs) Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 1, Season Premiere. Ad Astra. Welcome, everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're working our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. My name is David, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Andrew and Matt. And the opening tongue-in-cheek quotation was from the opening monologue to Star Trek, the original series, because this season we find ourselves among the stars, reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy. The book is Out of the Silent Planet. Today we'll be kicking off season six and talking a little bit about what you can expect in the coming months. And not only that, we'll also be talking about the origin and context of this season's book. And since Lewis doesn't give chapter names for Out of the Silent Planet, this season we're going to be naming each episode after a movie. (laughs) And today's episode I'm calling Ad Astra, which is the title of the admittedly rather dull 2019 movie starring Brad Pitt. And Ad Astra is a Latin phrase which means to the stars, and it has its origins in the Roman poet Virgil, who wrote in the Aeneid, Sic itur ad astra which means, thus one journeys to the stars. And on that inspiring note, gentlemen, welcome. (laughs) How are you doing this fine day, this first day of season six? Is your intention with the movie titles to genuinely reveal another Matthew J. Bush weakness of mine (laughs) and my lack of culturedness between haiku poems one season, which reveals my weakness with haiku poems, to song titles, which reveals my cultural weakness, to movie titles. I mean, it's just David. I think you I think you ponder up, okay, what's the thing that can make Matt look dumb this season? Fish in a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> as I started going through that, because I just made that up as we were talking, I'm like, man, someone's going to really call me out and be like, you do that yourself, Matt. <laughs> well, plus I love how you uh, isolated haiku poems as, as opposed to all poems. Um, <laughs> hey, he liked a poem last season. That's true. That's true. Uh, but I, I think you're okay being called out for not liking certain dull uh, Brad Pitt movies. Um, so good. You're, you're, you're probably all right. Well, hello. It's sunny Florida. We were in 27 degree weather in Colorado last weekend with 85 mile an hour wind. And I swear to you, tumbleweed everywhere down the highway. Um, just like flying in front of our car. I don't know how many of my killed, uh, and had a wonderful time with the Anselm society in Colorado Springs. Um, and, uh, yesterday or no, the first, a week ago yesterday, I celebrated my, no, a week ago today, celebrated my 42nd anniversary as a Christian, became a Christian in on December 1st. I wish I had more to show for it. Uh, <laughs> I wish I knew what day I did. Uh, I know the year I read Mere Christianity that really brought me back, but I don't remember the day. Well, if you're theologically accurate, um, according to both of our churches, it was the day that you were baptized. But, um, <laughs> my perhaps adult conversion was, was then. I like that. I like that. Um, and then Kristen and I went to uh, All Saints Winter Park this morning where she spoke at a women's tea about her book, Three Wise Women. She looks at the wise women of Christmas, Anna, Elizabeth, and of course, the Blessed Virgin Mary. <laughs> and I also want to note that uh, that two years ago yesterday, uh, Walter Hooper passed away. So mm. maybe we'll raise a glass to him. Mm. How about you, Matt? You know, I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. I'm very much looking forward to this. I, I, I'll say it's like, I think I'm. I, there's a... There's a childlike excitement for this recording because one, it's been a while since we've recorded together as a group up, up for something like this. We did a common room. Uh, this this book has been getting me excited the more I go through it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to us just getting into it. I think 
the combination of being uniquely knowledgeable on the book now, because David had strategically given me a couple great people to interview, which forced me to read their books before the season started. And so I'm enjoying not necessarily being the pinky. I'm not the brain, but <laughs> I'm in between the pinky and the brain now. And so there's just, there's, it just feels good. I don't feel on the outside. I feel like an insider. So, you know, that's a good thing, guys. <laughs> the ring finger and the brain. <laughs> I was, I, I was thinking that between the pinky and the brain, there's the heart. Hey, there that's a good one. Go. Thank you. Maybe we a- should cast ourselves as a, as a characters from the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> Who's uh, going to admit to me looking for a brain? <laughs> well, that's obvious. <laughs> I'm just grateful we're starting this season with David giving me a compliment right off the bat. So, you know, that's a good thing. So, it's a, it's a new day. It's a new day. I figured I should get the compliment out of the way nice and early. <laughs> <laughs> On top of that, we've got this new mic setup, which I'm super excited for. It just creates a very relaxed feel, I guess, when we're going through this. I really do espouse to Lewis's idea that the posture of your body influences your like prayer and just your mood and the way you approach something. And so in this case, if something is recording and I don't have like a desk where you have a chair, like you can like Andrew, as I'm looking at you and you're kind of leaning back right now, I was always on this high top and my back would hurt by the end of our episodes. And I'd be wanting us to like finish up because I'm like, this is just getting painful now. The Dr. Poe interview, I did two back-to-back for his books. In one day, it was three hours of chatting with him. And I was dying by the end of it. And so I'm sitting here in a relaxed chair with this microphone plastered to my face, a scotch in my hand. So that's a long way of saying, uh, I'm excited. I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to the season. I'm prepared. I'm knowledgeable. And I am lubricated with a glass of account 12. <laughs> nice. Well, we of course have to apologize for starting the season a month later than we originally advertised. Everything took a little longer to prepare for this season than we'd hoped, including setting up these new microphones and the new audio setup, courtesy of our patron supporters. And I'm sure we'll still have a few teething problems in the first few episodes. Uh, But we are here and I'm excited, ready to go. I'm very thrilled too. And part of my lovely trip to Colorado Springs, I got to meet Kimberly, one of our Patreon supporters. And so I was able to express in person my gratitude and just posted on on the Slack channel a picture of the two of us together at that wonderful night. And she also um, stop by my book table, which was which was fun. So, yes, we're we're thrilled to start another episode. We're thrilled to take a look at Lewis's fiction. Um, it's been a while since we did straight fiction. Mm. Um, actually, since the since the season where you made the wise decision to include me. <laughs> <laughs> well, this season we're going to be continuing with a drink and a toast each episode. And we enjoy nice drinks because God made all things good, and we honor them and we honor him by consuming them responsibly, exercising the cardinal virtue of temperance. And today, I'm enjoying a nice Hibiki whiskey by Santori, which I picked up at Duty Free on my way back from a recent trip to England. So for relaxing times, make them Santori time. (laughs) What are you two drinking? Well, first, you know, fun story. It was a beautiful article in the New York Times a couple of years ago of the guy that uh, founded Duty Free. And he anonymously gave away his entire fortune, multiple billions. No one knew who he was. When he died at the end of his life, he had like $2 million to his name, which to a lot of people listening to this and to us, that's a lot. But to someone who had made multiple billions and he was renting an apartment, he didn't even have an asset of a home. And finally, they told his story at the very end. And I just remember thinking there's something really beautiful about he didn't need notoriety. He didn't set up some foundation that everyone knew the name of and went to him. He just anonymously gave away his entire fortune. Duty-free guy. (laughs) Now, to answer your real question, I am drinking McAllen 12 because, of course, we're kicking off the new season and beginning and ends always start with McAllen. So I am drinking uh, Cull Ela 2010, but this is a first edition's aged in single cask. Mm. And so this was uh, this was my uh, Patreon supporter Bud. Uh, this was the bottle from his from his gift to us last Christmas, and so it was well over a hundred pounds, but uh, it was worth it. 
But the real flex about that, I've already had a little bit of it and it's delicious, but today I am drinking it out of this. Oh my goodness. Listeners, you cannot see, but you can hear. So Jerry Root, who famously is an incredibly generous man, he and I spoke in St. Louis a few weeks back, about a month ago. And he has promised me this cask. I'm holding, or not this, um, this, um, like decanter? Decanter. Yeah, sorry. So he gave me a decanter um, from Owen Barfield. Whoa. And this was Owen Barfield's decanter. And he, Jerry told me that C.S. Lewis had had many drams um, out of this decanter. So I put a little Kalila in there, and you guys can see my first pour. It's even That's like shit. a second degree relic. <laughs> it is a second degree relic. And it had been owned by uh, Michael Ward and Chris uh, Chris Mitchell of Blessed Memory. So here we go. Oh, ho, 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 ho. So this is my most special whiskey from my most special decanter. On my Christmas list, of course, is a Lagavulin 11, the Nick Offerman Lagavulin 11. Have you all heard of this? Mm-hmm. So, so here is my dram. In my Glencairn glass with from my, the Owen Barfield. Well, over the course of Out of the Silent Planet, our protagonist, spoiler warning, he learns a new language. So I thought this season we'd be saying cheers in a different language in each episode where we all get together. <laughs> and given that I'm drinking a Japanese whiskey today, I thought we would say cheers in Japanese, which is kampai. But before we do that, Andrew is going to be toasting one of our up-tier supporters, and this is a reward for anyone supporting us at the $10 level or above on Patreon. And today we are toasting Bronwyn Hall. Bronwyn, thank you. And thanks to all of our supporters, our slackers, uh, those who have really uh, contributed to helping us improve the podcast and and go far and wide. We, uh, we lift our glasses to you knowing without you, we wouldn't be here. So cheers. Kampai. I'm sorry. Kampai. Kampai. <laughs> well, the first thing I want to do is have a bit of a catch up. We did this a little bit on a recent Common Room video on YouTube. Uh, but what have you guys been up to since we wrapped up season six? Well, um, a lot of things. My goodness. Um, I'm racing towards ordination. Um, uh, as I mentioned, I went to a great Anselm uh, event. Um, Anselm Society, for those who don't know, is very uh, has a very similar spirit to a lot of uh, they they love Lewis and they love Tolkien and Chesterton and they have Burns nights and Shakespearean pub crawls and they hosted their annual Christmas party and it was a Narnia themed party so they flew us all the way out to Colorado, um, uh, Kristen and me, just to spend about twenty minutes with them at various spots throughout the evening, telling stories from the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, I just uh, this week heard from Brian Z- Brian Zhang, who uh, runs the That'll Preach podcast, and he's asked me to come and be on and talk about the science fiction books. Um, so I'll do that in January. Spent a great time with Jordan Duncan from Lesser Known Lewis, and he and I are going to um, do some things, and I'm sure that the Pints guys will we'll, we'll all do some things with him this year. Finished one Northwind class, finishing a second Northwind class this week. I'm reviewing a marvelous book about Charles Williams, uh, and that's thanks to Crystal Hurd, our companion and compatriot, uh, a book by Paul Fittis, an Oxford prof, on C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams as friends in coherence. So maybe we should see if we could get uh, Paul Fittis on the show at some point. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my eBay is up and running. Uh, I'm about to list today my set of the first edition Chronicles of Narnia, just in time for Christmas. I have a set of uh, of the complete uh, collected letters, including volume three and a couple more volume threes coming up. Um, Hopefully, they're sold by the time people hear this <laughs> on January third. <3rd. laughs> well, we'll keep we'll we'll keep pumping that full, and then. Uh, by January 3rd, I should know for sure my ordination date, and maybe that'll be the first or second week in uh, in January. Um, so my ordination to the priesthood is coming up, so I'm spending a lot of time praying about that. And then, of course, thanks to our Patreon supporters. I'll be attending the Mere Anglicanism Conference, Telling a More Beautiful Story in South Carolina. 
um, in Charleston on January 26th through the 28th. And uh, if any of you are in Charleston in late January, come and find me. Come to this marvelous conference. Simon Horbin and Peter Kraft and Michael Ward and Jerry Root, just incredible folks. And I'll have a bunch of Pints with Jack swag. So come and find me and we'll hit you up with some stickers and some magnets and, uh, and of course, our wonderful coasters. What about you, Matt? Yeah. Best way to summarize my life right now is uh, tell God your plans and he'll laugh at you. <laughs> You know, I was, was uh, in that healing journey and it got, uh, I don't want to say derailed. I want to say put on pause of uh, my my main data scientist who I do a ton of stuff with on a daily basis, um, incredible person, but he is going to be taking a job with Google and I don't blame him. Um, we're, we're got a good relationship, but anyway, so I've got until mid-January, well, I guess when this is released. Hopefully when this is released, guys, I'm going to be feeling way better because I have like one week left of this push. As we're recording this a month in advance, the next six weeks are uh, long days. I'll leave it at that. And not a lot of space. What you realize is even if you have a couple hours in the evening after a long day, you don't want to do this stuff like journaling and the deep stuff to do the healing journal uh, journey or spend time in the word. I hate to say that, but you're just like, you're so brain dead. You want to just watch a TV show, fall asleep and just start the next day. Hmm. That's the season of life Matt is in until January 9th is his official start date. Okay. So I got him until then and I'm using every bit of it. <laughs> That's why Lewis says the evening, there's an, almost any other time of the day is a better time of the day to say your prayers than in the evening. Uh, oh yeah. I can't do anything in the evening. It's just, that's why I'm a morning person. So I, that's why I've been getting, I get up at like 3.30 to get to the office. I just, I just work best in the mornings. That's how I am. Well, I'm a morning person because Alexander's been waking up at 5 a.m. for the last couple of weeks. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, during the break, I did quite a bit of work on our website, tidying up the episode pages for our back catalog. I'm still working on that, but they should now start looking a little bit more uniform because we were sort of making it up as we went along. Uh, and the other thing that I've done is put together an essays page, which you can find at pintsofjack.com slash essays. And on that page, I list every essay that I can find that Lewis wrote, as well as where it can be found, together with links to podcasts where that essay is discussed. This was particularly prompted by the lesser known Lewis guys and their desire to go through Lewis's essays. So we wanted to create a really useful resource for anybody that wants to try and do that. In other news, uh, more of my wife's family and friends have moved to Wisconsin. So this place is going to basically be a buzzing metropolis by the time that we're finished. <laughs> Probably the biggest news is that I took my wife and son to England. So my mum got to meet her grandson in the flesh for the first time. And also we got to visit London and the Lake District and Oxford. And in Oxford, I actually... Uh, took my family to go see the kilns. Shout out to Mary Jane McCloskey, who I met on the tour. Uh, and that night, I was also invited to address the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society, a recording which you guys should hopefully have heard uh, appear on our feed just before Christmas Day. And lastly, I had mentioned at the end of last season that I was working on my book about the four loves. Well, I'd hoped to get more work done during our break, but family life has been rather busy. Let's just say that. And I had actually started getting up at 5.15 in the morning so I could get some consistent time working on the book. But as I mentioned, Alexander started waking up at 5 a.m. So that hasn't been happening. So I'm actually going to temporarily suspend that project and finish something which I think I can turn around a little quicker. Uh, so this Christmas, I'm going to be working on an annotated version of G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. Oh, marvelous. That's a that's an important addition, David. <laughs> well, next up on today's agenda is an overview of the coming season. And we talked about it in season five, but I thought it'd be good to have a, a review for newcomers to the podcast. So every Tuesday, the three of us are going to be discussing one or two chapters from Out of the Silent Planet. Uh, we're going to have fewer episodes on Thursdays. But while we're working through Silent Planet, we'll be interviewing some experts about it. And Matt's already got a couple of those in the bag. Once we've finished up out of the Silent Planet, as usual, we'll have some specialty months, or as they say in the UK, speciality months. <laughs> 
That'll be followed, of course, by a Narnia month where Kristen, Dr. Kristen Ditchfield Lazo will be joining us again. And we'll be talking about The Magician's Nephew, a book that has more than a few overlapping themes with Out of the Silent Planet, Most, mm-hmm. mostly because, of course, that was the last fiction that Lewis wrote <clears throat> before he wrote <clears throat> Till We Have Faces. <sighs> he went downhill fast. How many minutes in did it take me? <laughs> Yeah. We'll then have a month of Jack's bookshelf. We'll be looking at some of the authors that Ju- that Lewis cr- treasured greatly. And we'll wrap things up that month with a month dedicated to the man who Lewis called his master, the Scottish minister and writer George MacDonald. Well, if you're like me and you're half listening to that, you can find a schedule laid out at pintswithjack.com <laughs> slash season dash six. And now he's back to the pinky. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I never said I was fully to the brain. I'm in between. <laughs> Dual persona. Oh, good. And don't worry, of course, throughout the season, we're going to be doing our special Patreon events as we have done in the past. They have been fantastic. So if you are not a Patreon supporter, we invite you to become one. It's an invitation from the Lord through us. <laughs> wow. I'm not quite sure I'm going to put God's name on this, but yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I stand behind the Lord's work. Uh, and you can do that at pintswithjack.com slash Patreon. Now, enough with the shameless plugs. Onwards to let's start talking about the book, guys. Absolutely. Well, actually, before we talk about the book, mm-hmm. I'd like to note that this is the first science fiction book we've ever touched on the podcast. So before we get to Lewis, I was curious as to what have been some of your favorite science fiction properties. Yeah, that's fun. What about you, Matt? I assume this is science fiction. You guys ever read the Red Rising series? Oh, the Red Rising series? Yeah. Never heard of it. Oh <laughs> it's phenomenal. It's all in space. So I assume it's science fiction. It's got multi planets and, and it's a very different type of civilization and really incredible themes. Actually, having interviewed Dr. Glyer and understanding the role and actually listening to the book I'm doing with Christiana Hale. We'll be interviewing her in a couple of weeks. Uh, talks about how the reason Lewis liked science fiction was the fact that, like H.G. Wells, could communicate his worldview through science fiction. In fact, Lewis liked that. He's like, you know, I'm going to do the same thing except counter it completely. And this book does something similar, and I would argue it actually presents a very beautiful worldview uh, of family, of friendship, uh, overturning just the utilization of society for the sake of humankind. Uh, which is a big theme in there. And that's going to be a theme actually now the silent panelist. So anyways, it's a great book. I would highly recommend the Red Rising series. My few friends that have all read it with me, all loved it, got hooked to it. And there's a lot of books in this series. It's kind of like Ender's Game, sort of. Mm. If you're a big Ender's Game person, mm-hmm. you're going to really like it. That'd probably be the best way to describe it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Ender's Game. Um, that was one that... Um Actually, when I was teaching um, college, teaching mythology at Lewis at the University of Houston, some of my students recommended Ender's Game and fell in love with, uh, with that book series. I even thought that the movie did a decent job of that. Um, I don't have a lot of free time for reading, um, and so it's been a while since I've really indulged in, in any kind of science fiction, or as Lewis called it, science fiction. But I remember as a high school student reading the Piers, a lot of the Piers Anthony stuff, and used to like those kind of pulpy Star Wars and Star Trek paperbacks, um, read a number of those. Mm. And speaking of Star Trek, um, I man, I watched the, uh, the reruns of the original series. I'm a child of the, I was born in the mid-60s, and so watched those in the 70s, remember standing in line for the first Star Wars movie, and then just being so blown away of the advance of technology in Star Wars from Star Trek. I pretty much like all the Star Trek uh, properties, except I can't quite get Deep Space Nine. My wife has watched most all of them. My brother-in-law loves that. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, man. Who can who can not like Chris Pratt? That was great. Uh, although we haven't seen the holiday special yet. So those are a few of mine. Have you seen the Star Wars holiday special? Oh, well, you know, what I, what I tried to do is combine it when I had the flu so that the vomiting would have uh, a, a du- <laughs> dual purpose. So, yeah, I, I don't think I've watched all of it. Um, 
yeah, no. So it's pretty awful. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Uh, for me, Star Wars, uh, the original trilogy only. Everything else is apocryphal, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Star Trek. The second generation from season three onwards before it's awful i went back and rewatched it it's like god how this thing got more serious i have no idea uh, i actually really like deep space nine i like the whole political intrigue and real plot arcs that lasted seasons i, I really liked that from the other stuff i would say quantum leap the original series i know they've just started a, a new version of it i haven't seen any of that yet uh babylon 5 i was a huge fan june Mm-hmm. And probably my favorite has got to be Firefly. Mm-hmm. I'm holding out to read Dune. I, I want to read it before I watch the movie. Movie. The fact that the movie got such good reviews, I was like, all right, you know, the book's probably pretty good then. It is. It, it, it's, it's very good. It's actually a relatively quick read as well. Okay. Mm, sure. My wife's a huge Firefly fan, and I've watched a few episodes, but I'm sorry to say I, nah, I couldn't quite get there. I did watch the original version of Battlestar Galactica, oh. um, but I don't like bears or beets. <laughs> well, we're a little past the halfway mark now, so let's talk broadly about this season's book, Out of the Silent Planet, and we'll try very hard to avoid spoilers and <laughs> not give too much away. But when did you guys first read it, and what did you think? So admittedly, I had first read Paralander, actually. He, uh, this was in the C.S. Lewis course back in college. So this would have been 2012, 2013 period. And started with Paralandra and really enjoyed Paralandra. I actually have distinct memories of the book. We also read out of Silent Planet. It was my senior year, second semester. I probably did skim it, to be blunt, um, just to do the test. But with all that said, it wasn't very memorable. And so when we were doing this season, you know, I wasn't necessarily super excited for it. And I just say that because now I can also say, then I read it and I would give it a six or seven out of 10, the book, like a month and a half ago in preparation for the season. And then I interviewed Dr. Glyer. And now I have listened to the bulk of the book for the uh, Christiana Hale in preparation for the interview with her, which both go deeply into the themes of this book. And, and now I am really excited. I got a couple of the big themes, but I didn't realize what is in here to the, the depth of it. And so I guess that's a long way of saying it was a while ago. It wasn't very memorable. And this is one of those books where when you understand what's being communicated, you can really see just what Lewis is doing and how incredible it is. How about you, Andrew? Yeah, I'm... Um- I'm trying to remember. So my kind of renaissance with Lewis, my first really diving deeply into Lewis was in my mid-20s when I was traveling with Phil Keggy and kind of started reading everything I could get my hands on. And so I, it was, I'm sure, part of that. Um, I remember my stepdad had it in his library, but we never talked about it. And so it must have been in my, my mid to late 20s and I'm just kind of reading Lewis like a like a thirsty man in a desert. I'm just reading everything I can. And remember just being bowled away by the story and, you know, kind of picking up some of the themes. And of course, now when I read it, I try to always read it in true first editions. Um, so I got uh, the three volumes of first editions for $30 back in the day. I also want to propose a new drinking game. In addition <laughs> to Till We Have Faces references, <laughs> Uh, Andrew Show and Tell. Uh, friends, did you not did you not see the? Uh, Wait, you're clicking the, the a button, about- David, aren't you? <laughs> he does. He I've, has a button. I've now. been so confused with that sound. <laughs> I'm literally sitting here like, okay, you get, your faces aren't moving, and I just heard a sip sound, <laughs> and I'm like, is my Riverside delayed? And then there's oh. nothing. It just because this is the second time you've done it. This, and I'm like, what is going on? It just oh, dawned on me. Fantastic. I had no idea, listeners. That is David clicking a button to create the sip sound. I can't drink in real life every time Andrew mentions that we have faces or shows us the first edition. My liver's in not that good a state. As we said, temperance. Oh That's, yeah, you, you had a note about temperance. So yeah, there you go. Um, I just remembered loving um, – well, it was, a, it was a period when I loved anything that I, that I read by Lewis. 
Since then, I've heard um, and read some great scholarship and great connections with all of that. I was very confused um, about that hideous strength, and it took me a while to kind of get it. it. Took me about 100 pages in before I really got it. And of course, I've discovered since then that it's because that hideous strength was so influenced by Charles Williams. Mm. So I read it not as a trilogy, but a tetralogy. I read uh, the first two Lewis books, and then I read a Charles Williams thriller. And then I read that hideous strength when I sit down to read them through. So I just remember being really charmed by it. For example, the first chapter where there's a real Scrutapian experience, which we'll discuss soon. And that I think was one of the first books where I really started to understand some of Lewis's themes and echoes. And so that was, I just remember being very excited about it, but that was, gosh, probably 30 years ago that I first read it. Well, I think I read it about the time that we were recording season two. And I wasn't a great fan initially because I heard it was a sci-fi trilogy. So I was basically expecting Star Trek. Uh, but it has grown on me in rereadings. Mm-hmm. Now that I come to it knowing what to expect, I can enjoy it far more. And my hope for this season is that we raise the profile of this trilogy because everyone's read Narnia. Most people have heard of Mere Christianity or the Screwtape Letters, but I meet a lot of people who don't even know that this series exists. So I want to elevate that in the public mind about C.S. Lewis. And, and what's your guys' knowledge of the Ransom Trilogy coming into this? So David particularly, Andrew just being a Lewis scholar, I know it's probably decently high, but um, David in past seasons, you've done a lot of like prep. You've read books around it to understand it. Like, how much do you know of this outside of just having read Lewis's other corpus and now reading this for the first time? Have you read resources that help unpack and understand this book already in preparation for the season? I've read the books of the authors that we're going to be interviewing this season about Out of the Silent Planet. Okay. That's pretty much the sum total of, of my knowledge outside of just reading the book myself. Which is decent. I mean, that's already a pretty big leg up. I mean, the authors do the heavy lifting. Yeah, there's some there's some good scholarship. And one of the things I love about Lewis scholarship is that most Lewis scholarship and most Lewis scholars come to their task out of a great love for Lewis. Um, it'll come as little surprise that uh, I think that chronological background and context is super important. So this book is published in 1938. Oh, that's early. Yeah, it's very early. It's one of his first books that we know. Um, of course, there are the two volumes of poetry um, published in the 20s before Lewis's conversion. There's Pilgrim's Regress, which is in 31, I think, um, 31, 32. Yeah, it's his allegorical apology for uh, reason, romanticism, and Christianity. And what year did he become a Christian? Like how long has he been now? 30, uh, 31. So he's about seven years into Christianity. Okay. So yeah, it's seven years in. Um, he publishes Allegory of Love in 36, but he had been working on that in his 20s, and that's a, a scholarly book. So this is his first foray into fiction. He's fairly well known as a scholar and critic. The Hobbit comes out the year before. And so Out of the Silent Planet is, I believe, read in its entirety to the Inklings, which had just gotten together five years earlier. So it's one of those. It anticipates kind of the rise of the war. You can kind of get some of those themes. Um, of course, Hitler kind of comes to power in 36 and and marches towards uh, starting the war a year after Out of the Silent Planet comes out. Some of the themes about the enemy um, you hear clearly echoed in his work, Preface to Paradise Lost, uh, in Mere Christianity, where he talks about the devil and certainly in the Screwtape Letters. You hear echoes of these themes starting to develop. And so mm. it's a really important key work. Also in context, Out of the Silent Planet comes out in 38, two years before his first book of apologetics, The Problem of Pain, and about three or four years before he gives the broadcasts that eventually become mere Christianity. So that's interesting context because it feels somewhat like an apologetics work in the form of fiction, in the sense of yeah. when you read it, it seems like a defense of a different worldview, you know, countering very much the modern day worldview of the time and what's going on in the historical context. And that's helpful the year you placed it in. And uh, 
And so it's fascinating to hear all of that. And it was a beautiful description of Christianity um, from a different perspective. And so you get all that, yet he hasn't written mere Christianity. He hasn't written any of the things that we would normally associate with Lewis. And so it's fascinating to hear. I, I did not know that. I would have thought this came much later after he had a very formed systematic theology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, he was very well read prior to even becoming a Christian. So it's not like he only had seven years to develop his worldview, as as Dr. Poe argues in his books, had been developing the decades even before he became a Christian, technically, because he was so well read. But that that is just really fascinating to hear. This was one of the earlier ones. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, and... Uh, another piece of that context, I think, is his interest in the Arthurian stories. Hmm. And so um, he does some work with Charles Williams on Charles's Arthurian poetry. And uh, there are certainly Arthurian themes, clearly, yes. in all of the trilogy and especially in this book. And it also gives some context and some background to a famous quotation by Lewis. He says, one can smuggle in any amount of theology under the cover of romance. Mm. Now, by romance, he's not talking about these kind of cheapy paperbacks, you know, these bodice rippers. Not the notebook, Nicholas Barks. That's not what you're referring no, to. No, 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 but, no, no. Oh, man, that's like romance the cream of the crop. The, no. <laughs> well, I mean, you can sob at that movie if you wish. Sheldon Van Aken is a cream of the crop, a severe mercy. Okay. No, again. <laughs> <laughs> Beatrice Dante? No. Oh, man. That's just... no. It's not about romantic love, mm. it's about adventure. So the Arthur story is a romance. Mm. And so romances involve journeys, they involve um, kind of the entrance to the supernatural. They almost always involve kind of a liminal or a boundary crossing. So you go out of the familiar into the unfamiliar. The knight leaves the round table to go on a quest. And sometimes it's to save a fair maiden, but usually there's no relationship between the knight and the fair maiden other than him protecting her, right? And so you see elements of that in Paralandra. Very often, especially when you make the liminal crossing, when you cross the threshold out of the civilized into the uncivilized, whether it's going into the woods or going into the uh, going into the stars, yeah. um, when you make that boundary crossing, the supernatural can kind of start to take place, which is why you see these knights of the round table going into the woods and then finding the enchanted castles and the and the witches and things like that, and so. And it's kind of tales of daring do, and it's chivalry. It's people going out with a code and facing some of the difficulties that they have. And when they do, they very often have these great adventures and also adventures for the Lord. Um, A lot of the Arthurian romances, especially, are these noble knights trying to do, you know, the quests for the sake of God. And so uh, there's, there's some of this going on. What do you know of the medieval model of thinking? Because this this part we're talking about what listeners should know about the background of this book. We don't want to get too far ahead because we're going to talk a good bit about the medieval model as we dive into the book. But medieval thought was a big part of Lewis's, I mean, scholarship, of course. And that greatly comes into this book. And so when when it talks about the medieval cosmos, both of the books I have read in preparation for this discuss that. Can you give context to what that means when they talk about the medieval ordering of the cosmos, medieval ordering of the world? Like, what, what Do you know stuff on that? Well, we only have 12 minutes left, so we should extend this to another hour and 12 minutes. <laughs> so I did a minor in medieval studies. And oh, I didn't know of that. course, I'll defer to, uh, to Michael Ward. We should probably take a small drink every time I mention him. I'll, I would drink to Mike all day. Yeah. Cheers. I'm also getting more convinced of his theory or thesis um, view after uh, the insight, Christ- insight, revelation, thinking. revelation yes. after diving into this. And well, the more you read, the more you'll, you'll be convinced. Um, uh, yeah, I get it now. Uh, and Lewis writes the planets poem in 1935, right? So, or publishes it anyway in 35. And so it's within three or four years of writing the planet's poem that Lewis begins writing about the other planets. And so 
his medieval view of the planets, and you can find a lot more about this in a couple of sources. Um, his book, Discard The Discarded Image, is uh, is out there. It's still in print, very worth reading, very short. And certainly, although he has lots of references to other writers, it's very understandable about the medieval mindset. Also, um, the studies of medieval and Renaissance literature have got some interesting essays about this. So the part of what happens is that the planets are thought of as intelligences, and there's a spiritual hierarchy that involves all of the planets. Ours is called the silent planet because the archon uh, or archangel of our planet has fallen. Of course, it's the prince of the power of the air. It's Satan, who is the archangel of our planet. And so because he has fallen, he has cast this, this pall of silence where our world doesn't communicate and our angels don't really communicate with the angels you know, elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and so he looks at the planetaries as also this kind of hierarchical system. And listeners remember in 38, of course, there was no space travel. There was just fantasy, you know, wells and other things. And we didn't know if the moon was populated. We certainly thought that Mars could be. And kind of the fundamental idea that takes off, I know we've got a note about his conversation with Tolkien. The fundamental idea that Lewis is interested in, and he gets this from David Lindsay and his voyage to Arcturus, Lewis was interested not in the mechanics of space travel, but Lewis was interested in the spiritual ramifications mm -hmm. of going to another planet. And so he said that often aliens are portrayed either as these monstrous creatures who can wipe us out, you know, and think Ender's Game, or these servile creatures who we can, you know, take over, like unfortunately uh, so much um, Aboriginal native, uh, you know, native indigenous people have been, have been conquered. So there's this either imperialism to dominate or this fear of being decimated. And Lewis goes and he meets creatures very much like ourselves. So he's interested in the spiritual ramifications of what would happen during space travel. And that's some of what's bubbling up for him. There's a couple of other things, but we've got them in the notes and I want you all to weigh, be able to weigh in, of course. Well, the one thing I'll quickly say before David chimes in here is the very simple phrase that I heard in Christiana Hale's book is, Think of space versus heavens. Mm -hmm. Like when you when you think of space, you think of like this abyss, this unknown. There's a bit of a fear. There's a vastness to it, and then you think of the heavens, and there's a warmth to it. There's a teeming with life. There's a creation, a, a pulsating dance. Almost think of Lewis's dance from your Christianity. And that dichotomy, that theme of worldview is going to be important in this book. That mental model was very helpful to me. And I did not understand that before the first reading. But then after the conversation with Dr. Glyer and reading these books in preparation really opened my eyes to that. And then you can, and the reason I wanted to share early was you see a more naive worldview in the beginning of the book and it starts to pop out to you and on the pages. And then it eventually it starts to grow. And so you see it along the journey. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. So I think we should say a, a few words about what, actually where this idea for a book actually came from. And there is a story that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were chatting to one another, probably over a pint. And Lewis said, Tollers, there isn't enough of the sort of thing that we really like in books. So I suppose we'll have to write our own. And they apparently did a coin toss. One of them was going to write a space travel story. The other one was going to write a time travel story. And Lewis got space travel. And as we've mentioned, he publishes Out of the Silent Planet in 1938. Tolkien, on the other hand, he got a time travel story. And Tolkien being Tolkien, he uh, procrastinated, languished, <laughs> and uh, actually never finished his book, which was The Lost Road. But it did sow some seeds for what would come later in his yeah. own legendarium. Doesn't Tolkien, I don't want to say give you hope but make you feel good at your imperfections. <laughs> Procrastination and incompletion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, the man achieved incredible success, wrote one of the greatest works of all time. But all I hear when I hear more and more about him is how terrible he was with procrastination, productivity. He seemed like a person, actually, as someone who attempts to do the opposite with 
all of this health and wellness stuff I hear. I mean, disconnect action from feeling, take cold showers. So if you feel like you don't want to do it, do it, do hard things, all that stuff. I buy into that. Uh, Tolkien sounds like a human that's just like, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to do it. And then when he feels like it, and, and obviously in his, in his profession, I mean, single moments of brilliance and creativity propel him forward. And so I don't know what that means, but maybe it's, he's procrastinating and when he feels like it is when his best creativity happens. But I don't know. It just gives you the sense of like hope, I guess. That. Yeah. Well, Matt, I think you're, I've got homework for you. You have to read the short story, Leaf by Niggle. <laughs> um, although Tolkien claims not to be uh, allegorical, it is a sheer allegory of his own life. And Niggle is a painter who's painting this enormous tree, and he gets so bogged down getting the detail of every little leaf that he never finishes. And he niggles away at his creation, which is exactly how Tolkien approached his writing. And admittedly, he wouldn't have finished Lord of the Rings had Lewis kind of got niggle to paint the rest of the tree. Um, <laughs> and that's, I think, what happens too with the space travel uh, or the time travel book. A couple things about that comment. First of all, I think it's an implicit indictment of modernist literature. Modernism has its best year in 1922 with Ulysses and the Wasteland. Lewis and Tolkien, by saying there aren't enough of the sort of books we like to read, they are saying modernist literature leaves us cold and we need to write some more of the stuff that we like. While Tolkien did not finish The Lost Road, there is uh, a semi-complete, at least couple of chapters called The Notion Club Papers. And it's also a little bit allegorical and it's set, I think, in 1983. And it's a time travel story. So Tolkien sets out to do these things. But I think that in some ways I would take his completed draft of The Lord of the Rings over any uncompleted things that he ever did. One other thing, uh, one other comment worth making, I think, I was discussing this with um, Lancia Smith, who has a marvelous website called Cultivating. What a name, Lancia. Yeah, Lancia. Lancia. And um, we were talking about the kind of incomplete narratives of our own lives. And uh, she had said that that Bilbo wrote The Hobbit. And uh, and I made the comment that uh, Bilbo didn't finish The Hobbit. It was up to Frodo to finish The Hobbit. And in a similar way, it's up to us to finish what Tolkien didn't, didn't finish. The Silmarillion, you know, doesn't get done. And at the end of the summer, that Clyde Kilby from the Wade Center spent with Tolkien trying to get him to finish the Silmarillion. Tolkien laughed at him. He said, see, we've been the whole summer and you haven't made me finish. Um, so he was very dilatory. But, um, but I think it allows space for us as writers, not only to try our hands at things that we don't necessarily finish, but also, you know, it's up to us to finish the story. In some ways, it's up to us to finish the Lord of the Rings. We have to write our own story into that story. And so in some ways, even Tolkien's incompletion offers me at least a little hope. <laughs> the book was obviously positively received to some degree because there's two other sequels written to it. Yet at the same time, I want to say it was one of the essays that Dr. Glyer had written, or I'm um, sorry, uh, edited. Uh, she did not write them that most people did not seem to get the Christianity undertone themes in it. What do you think it was about it that drew people to it? Because a lot of it is that that was attractive to me is the Christianity side that he's kind of subtly tucking through it. So imagine you read this, you don't get any Christianity from it. Is it the poetry of the language? Because that's pretty incredible in here. Uh, is it the, the beautiful relationship with creation? that is in here. I think there's there's a lot of that in this book. I mean, what do you guys think people were drawn to? I think it was just a fun story that people enjoyed. Hmm. As for why they didn't realize what he was doing, Lewis, he wrote in a letter to Sister Penelope, um, he said only two out of the 60 reviews realized what he was doing. And he attributes that mainly to ignorance. And, and this is where he says those famous lines about if there were only somebody with richer talent and, and more time, this great ignorance could be used to help the evangelization of England. <laughs> As he says now, any amount of theology can now be smuggled into people's minds under the cover of romance, which is adventure fiction, without their knowing it. But the idea of smuggling theology is an idea that kind of comes 
up later in the Narnia books. Remember that the Narnias are not allegories, but they're supposals. And supposing a man could travel to Mars and find intelligent life there, what might that look like? Supposing this kind of imperialistic, capitalistic, you know, completely kind of lust-driven uh, effort to, um, to to dominate other other planets. Supposing that happened, what would an Arthurian knight look like? as they went in to try to protect these planets from our own uh, from our own bad devices. And so, yeah, this idea of smuggling in theology, it's also, um, Lewis said that all of his works began with pictures. Um, and so he had pictures in his head of what these things might look like. Famously, he also said, um, there's a, 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 a great essay, I think it's it all began with a picture. It's one of his um, essays and on stories where he talks about um, in the mind of an author, the the story kind of bubbles along like marmalade bubbling. And once it's done, it needs to be poured into a container, right? And so the container is the genre or the form of the story. So he said, I had a picture in my head of a fawn walking through a forest in snow. Um, well, that sounded like a fairy tale, so I wrote a fairy tale. I had a picture in my head of floating islands and that seemed like there's nothing on earth that has floating islands. So that must be a science fiction story. So that's why Paralandra becomes science fiction. So he says in the author's mind, there's a story that's longing for a form. And so this form of science fiction is one, like you said, he'd loved for years. So when you write a supposal, it's not like you're trying to write in Christianity. You're just trying to be faithful to the picture and the idea. But Christianity comes into the stories because Christianity was inside of Lewis. So he's not trying to etch that bit in. He's just writing using his baptized imagination. And in some ways, I think that it's not dissimilar to what happens to Anidos in Fantasties. Kind of he leaves his home, he goes into the fairy world of the supernatural world and makes sense of the dangers there and comes safely home. Not to spoil either book, but um, <laughs> but I think that there's some of that going on too. Well, speaking about different forms, you have mentioned that Dr. Ward talks about looking at versus looking along books. Mm -hmm. And this is the looking along book, exploring that question about how Christianity might interact with extraterrestrial life or, or how our, our world view would interact with that. For the looking at version of this, I'd recommend one of Lewis's essays, Religion and Rocketry. That really does ask that question. Mm -hmm. What happens if we find life on other planets? What impact and what consequences does that have for our faith? You know, I prior to the conversations in the books for the interviews I had to do for this, I really thought a big part of this was addressing that question of what would extraterrestrial life mean for Christianity? And that's a part of this for sure. Now that I've read those books, I'm amazed at how they never really bring that up of how this is so much to do with addressing like the modern worldview of, of humankind as the ultimate good and willing to like sacrifice humanity or humans for the sake of humanity and using people to the means to an end and progress for the sake of progress. You know, all the stuff that we think of that's actually even today plagues modern society uh, versus that medieval worldview of the ordering of the cosmos and what that spiritually, philosophically means for us as individuals and our relation in that. And so, it's interesting how that that's the big probably shift my mindset has taken from prior to these conversations to post because um, I was very much in that camp of like, oh, this is just, okay, what if there happens to be other extraterrestrial life? What does that mean for Christianity? We're all good to go. It can fit within the worldview. <laughs> you know, it's worth in addition to the essays to explore a couple of um, Lewis's poems. In particular, there's one that's, I'm sorry, it's very um, sexualized um, that I won't read here, but uh, his poem, A Prelude to Space, an epithalmium, um, he sees the rocket as kind of a phallic image and this kind of male urge to dominate, even sexually, behind the urge to go and dominate space. Um, but he also has a couple of others, including science fiction cradle song. And he says, 
by and by, man will try to get out into the to get out into the sky, sailing far beyond the air from down and here to up and there. Stars and sky, sky and stars make us feel the prison bars. And he says, there's no way to get into the sky because we carry with us our own prison and our own thoughts about how it will be. So there's this sense that people misunderstand space. And in fact, he doesn't even like the word space. And we find soon that when he gets, when Ransom gets into space, it's populated. It's populated by angels and life and forces. So it's not cold and dead. And that's one of the themes that he's uh-huh. trying to get at. Space versus heaven. Space versus the heavens. Absolutely. Keep that in the back of your mind. Yes. There's also um, an expostulation against too many writers of science fiction. And there he condemns people who use space as kind of a backdrop and the mechanics of space travel as kind of a toy. But once you get out into space, you rework the same old soap opera type stories um, and they find out in space the same kind of economy that they found here on Earth. And that's what Lewis was writing against. He said, let's find out what happens to the spiritual economy once our hero lands on Mars. And when he does, there's this fascinating incident that I won't go into where he tries to tell the Martian his, the Martian native, he sp- feels obligated to tell the Martian native about Christianity. And the, res- the response he gets is shocking. And I'll just put a pin in that until we get to that chapter. So not just the mechanical going out into space, not just man's desire to conquer which he condemns, and not just space as just another backdrop for the same old tired stories. And you find it actually in um, Diggory, who says, just think of what another world might mean. You might find anything, anything. And this world of possibility where all of the rules change and things that we couldn't even imagine are out there. Just think of what another world might mean. This is Diggory in the Wood Between the Worlds. You might find anything. And that word anything is a word to conjure with. Peter says, that old chap of the professor of Diggory will let us do anything we like. And so the word anything becomes really significant of a true difference than anything that we've seen before. And that's part of what he's exploring in traveling to another planet. And can I say reality is an iconoclast? I feel like that applies to this book. He comes in with a worldview. Yes. And the reality he's ultimately presented with slowly chisels away at that worldview and transforms it. And so I think that's another theme that I would suggest reason I want to posit it right now is even in the first and second and third chapters, you will see, try to pay attention to the, the worldview he has. Mm-hmm. So you can also see how it shifts as the book goes on. And Jerry Root is right that that theme is absolutely everywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, we are overrunning quite majorly. So there's one last thing I want to talk about. Batesian flexibility. <laughs> no, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> Died over the break. But there is one question I want to ask, and that's about the dedication. Yeah. Uh, the dedication of this book is to my brother, WHL, a lifelong critic of the space and time story. So this refers to Warren Hamilton Lewis, Warney, Lewis's brother. When he describes him as a lifelong critic of the space and time story, does that mean that Warney dislikes sci-fi or he's just very demanding of the books that he reads? Um, I think it's neither. I think he means critic as somebody who reads a great deal of it and um, and enjoys it, but I could be wrong. Hey, Lewis says you can't be a good critic unless you enjoy something. Brain, yeah. and brain. So I, there you go, there you are. I'll need to, um, it may be worth me dipping back into Warren's diaries, Brothers and Friends, um, to see how much of it, um, how much of science fiction Warren he liked as well. Let's wrap up with something new this season. We are going to be ending each episode with an audience question. And the audience question for today is, in your opinion, what is the best sci-fi book or movie? And if I might add, why is it Firefly? <laughs> Please feel free to email us either directly at contact at pintsforjack.com or via our now working contact us page on pintsforjack.com or comment on any of the social media posts, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 
Well, I hear the call for final drinks. So thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, we pray for our listeners every Tuesday, along with any of the prayer requests from our Slack channel. Uh, but we particularly like to thank our top tier Patreon supporters, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Angela, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Kimberly. Gary, Stephen, Matt, <laughs> Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please invite a friend along for this season. And why not meet up and have a beverage and a chat about it as you go? You know, Lewis said that uh, when one has read a book, I find there's nothing so nice as dis discussing it with someone else, even though it tends to produce rather fierce arguments. And I think that's what he enjoyed, not only with the Inklings, but with Warney. And we encourage you to enjoy that too. And please join us next time when we'll be reading the first chapter of Out of the Silent Planet. And we will literally, geographically and astronomically be going further up and further in. Cheers. Kenpai. Kenpai. Ha, I remember. Rain. <laughs>